This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore Rand's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. My name is Lindsay Cosberg, and I'm Rand's Vice President for External Affairs. We uh, this evening have the pleasure of, uh, of having two members of the RAND research faculty here this evening. Um, uh, Titus Halama will present to you this evening, um, and his co-author Jim Hosick is with us as well. And uh, as we open up for questions and answers as we do in this format, we hope that you'll have the opportunity to enjoy hearing from, uh, from both Titus and Jim. I'm going to tell you briefly about both of them. Um, Titus is a management scientist at RAND, um, but what is perhaps more important is that his focus is on technology-based economic development, science and engineering workforce issues, health and retirement behavior, and labor markets. He has, uh, in addition to the work that you'll hear about tonight, also recently uh, been engaged in work looking at what the key factors of success are to, uh, to the world's top 20 universities. So um, an interesting topic, I know, to, uh, to many. Um, Titus has been with RAND since 2006, so he is a relatively new member of the RAND family, and he came to us uh, following a postdoctoral fellowship at Caltech. Jim Hosick has been at RAND a lot longer. Um, and uh, and it, I, I have to say, there are very few people here who possess um, the depth of knowledge uh, about this institution and as much experience across our research areas as Jim. So uh, I think you will, uh, will enjoy the benefit of that in all of his work. Today, Jim is a senior economist and director of the Forces and Resources Policy Center in the RAND National Security Research Division because that's not enough. He is also editor of the RAND Journal of Economics and uh, one of the cherished professors at the Party RAND Graduate School. Um, so the only job I think at the moment he doesn't have may be mine. Um, and, uh, and it's a pleasure for us to, uh, to be able to really expose you to two tremendous resources within the organization tonight. And I will get out of the way and let Titus get started. So the motivation for this research comes from uh, about a dozen or so reports on, on U.S. competitiveness in science and technology. These are very high-level reports, and they express significant concerns about the uh, state of competitiveness of the United States, basically the notion that the United States might be losing its edge in, uh, in science and technology. Um, it should be noted that these reports come from a number of highly credible institutions and are produced by highly credible individuals. We're talking about Nobel Prize winners, the deans of research universities, um, some, some uh, highly ranked politicians and business leaders. So it is uh, of importance that we take these uh, concerns very seriously. Um, Jim and I began this research uh, by looking in detail through these reports and trying to analyze sort of the underlying reasons or arguments for these sort of concerns. And basically we found that they're twofold. The first is the notion that globalization of science and technology will make it more difficult for the United States to be successful in science and technology. And here the notion is that of increasing capacity in science and technology of other regions and other nations, uh, of an increasingly rapid diffusion of uh, innovation, and also about significant, uh, uh, significant uh, international, or basically the international nature of R&D, increasingly international nature of R&D. 
Uh, the second main concern also is that the United States is in, in these reports, their opinion, is not investing enough in its future, that is in its people and in its infrastructure. And here uh, the notion is that, uh, that we're not educating enough uh, individuals so that there are shortages in the science and engineering workforce. Um, um, other elements here are about uh, significant underinvestment in R&D, in particular in basic research significant underinvestment in basic research and here the idea is that basic research is the type of research that ultimately leads to, to fundamental discovery so that this is very important and lastly about an increasing reliance on foreigners in the science and engineering workforce. Ultimately of course the concern here is that this impacts economic growth and uh, impacts uh, our national security so that this is a threat. So um, Jim and I, when we began this research, we, we started to sort of, we wanted to make a, an impact that was different from these many reports that were out there, and we basically follow a different approach. Basically what we do is we are very much fact-driven. We look at a lot of data. Basically we try to sort of, uh, how do you answer this question of, of sort of competitiveness in science and technology? Basically our approach is to look at a number of input and output indicators of performance, and also to use economic theory, so basically uh, synthesizing all the data that we have been collecting. And then lastly, we look at the science and engineering enterprise as, as a whole, so we take sort of a global or holistic perspective, taking a, a sort of helicopter view at this. So basically it's sort of data-driven, it's providing synthesis, looking, looking at e economic theory to guide our thinking, and then, uh, uh, and then this sort of uh, last element of... Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I'm losing it. Um, okay, basically, that's our contribution. Uh, sorry, I'm sort of looking at, at this in a holistic way. Um, so these are our research questions, and this is also the outline of the discussion that I want to present today. Um, we basically focus on these three main research questions. In the first part of this discussion, we will focus on, on a sort of this notion that globalization of science and technology is making it more difficult for the United States to be successful in science and technology. Here we'll be focusing uh, on a number of input and output measures. We compare those with other nations and we compare that with the past. Um, also, we'll be using economic theory to try to answer the question of wh what sort of the impact potentially is of globalization. Then in the second and third part of the presentation, I'll be focusing on this notion that that uh, the United States is not investing enough in its people, uh, that's the third part, and, and in infrastructure in the second part. So let's take a little step back. First, what do we mean with the globalization of science and technology? It's basically the observation that private sector innovation is increasingly becoming international. It used to be largely a domestic um, enterprise or domestic activity. It was conducted by large firms like uh, the I IBM labs, AT&T labs, etc., and it would be done largely in the United States. Well, these large corporations have set up shop in other places in the world. They have set up shop also in, in Europe, in Asia, etc. So basically there's an internationalization. But increasingly, uh, you find also that today innovation is driven by small firms. We're talking about sort of uh, these uh, kind of clusters like Silicon Valley uh, where you have small innovative firms working together closely with capital, capital providers or venture capital and, um, and closely working with research universities, sort of a lot of entrepreneurial activity and these kind of clusters 
you find increasingly also elsewhere. They, you find them in Europe, in Asia, Latin America, etc. So basically there's this internationalization that has taken place. In addition, you find that there are significant investments made by other regions in science and technology, basically significant investments in research and development, in people, in, in, in educating people, etc. So basically uh, also a lot of ambitious plans by other regions like Europe, uh, China, etc. And sort of ultimately the idea is that this will accelerate innovation uh, globally. So um, what we then did is we were interested in sort of this question that against this background of increased sort of participation of the rest of the world in science and engineering, how well has the United States held up? And basically we, sh we show here a first input indicator. These are total R&D dollars for a number of regions here in the United States, the EU 15 to represent Europe, Japan, the rest of the world, China, Korea, and the Russian Federation. And basically we see that in this measure, the United States dominates. It accounts for about 38% of global R&D expenditures. Uh, it also showed significant growth over the period. That's 1993 to 2006. Um, it grew a little faster than its main competitor, the European Union, and uh, then Japan. And then we also note the significant rise here of China, which nowadays accounts for nearly 10% of global R&D expenditures. Here we see an output indicator. These are triadic patents. These are patents that are broadly patented in the United States in Europe and in Japan. So this is the closest thing to what you could call a global patent. These are patents that are patented in three large major regions in, in, in the world. Uh, and um, patents are basically typically interpreted as an indicator of innovation, of new technology, of inventions. And uh, we see here that in that measure, the United States here in red uh, showed solid growth. Uh, in fact, a little faster than uh, the European Union, but not by much. We see here Japan, which started out sort of below the United States in 1985 and below Europe, then sort of caught up in 1990, then fell behind a little bit, and now seems to be at the same level as the United States and Europe again. Also in this measure, no strong indication that the United States is falling behind or that it's sort of slowing down. We also note uh, the significant rise here of a newcomer, Korea, which is starting to account for some significant output. Interestingly, China is, has very little to show for at this point. This is of interest in the following sense. In the previous slide, I already showed that China is already accounting for nearly 10% of global R&D expenditures. It also has built up a very sizable science and engineering workforce. Its workforce is already larger than that of Japan. It is approaching the size of the European workforce. And if these trends sort of continue, then at some point it might overtake in size and share number uh, that of the United States. So basically there are significant inputs into the science and engineering enterprise in China, but it has very little to show for in terms of triadic patents here, which are a measure of innovation. And this supports the notion that China at this point is not yet an innovator. Basically it's growing its economy rapidly by copying and by imi imitation, but not yet by being an innovator. So here we have another set of output indicators. On the left-hand side, we have research publications. This is direct output of sort of the research effort. Uh, and here we see the top 1% most cited publications. This is an indicator of the quality, 
the prestige or the influence that these uh, publications, that this research has. Uh, so basically, direct output and here sort of impact and quality of that research. You see it here for a number of reg regions, the United States, Europe, Asia 10, which includes Korea, China, Japan, and, and, and India, and then here the rest of the world. We see that in this measure, the United States accounts for about the same number of publications as the European Union. Um, but we see that when you compare the United States sort of in terms of the quality, the influence of this research with the European Union, you see that uh, the United States is very, very dominant, which shows the very high quality of the research that is conducted in the United States. What you also see here in this measure, in these measures here, is that uh, the rest of the world seems to be growing faster. We see here a significant increase in the number of publications in Europe, also in Asia. Um, here also Europe seems to be improving significantly in the quality of research. So basically when you put all these measures together, and Jim and I looked at, an, uh, at, a, at, a, at a great number of other measures as well, typically what we see is that the United States continues re relatively unabated growth in most of these measures, along, very much along historic uh, growth patterns. Um, so the United States doesn't show much of a slowing, but you do see that the rest of the world is growing faster in some areas and is catching up in many areas. So then we looked at economic theory to try to sort of understand what this might mean for the future of the United States. Um, basically, with this sort of observation that the rest of the world is catching up, the United States is continuing also solid growth, and what might all of this mean? And basically, we conclude that the answer to that this is not uh, as straightforward, which is that there are actually a number of benefits from globalization, but there are al also some drawbacks. So the benefits of globalization are, 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 there's a couple of them. Basically, they're threefold. The first one is that there are gains from trade. That is that globalization, increasing levels of trade, actually leads to gains of trade. That is, it benefits both of the, the countries or, or all the countries that are involved in this trade. And so, similar in science and technology, uh, the globalization of science and technology is some sort of continuation of general globalization trends. And so these, this can benefit uh, the, both uh, nations, basically increase trade. The second component is that technology um, can also benefit the United States. That is, it is less important whether the technology is invented here in the United States or whether it's invented elsewhere. In this in world of increasingly rapid technology diffusion, uh, what really matters is whether a country, a nation, is able to adopt that technology. Basically, if China starts to become an inventor at some point, that technology might benefit the United States by uh, sort of in improving the efficiency of its workers, the efficiency of, of its industries, etc., and this will lead to economic growth. And the third factor is that even in research, the outcome may, may be positive. And this is a little counterintuitive, which is that um, a model of sort of innovation of trade and technology diffusion that looks sort of at the increasingly sort of levels, increasing levels of, of globalization in science and technology, that the outcome of that uh, actually may be that the demand for research for the nation that is better at doing research actually increases, and by all means that is still the United States. Um, but ultimately, uh, other nations are likely, if these trends continue, 
to, to, to develop scientific centers of excellence, and these centers may undermine U.S. advantage in these areas. Simply said, they, they, they might gain comparative advantage in some areas. Um, and of particular concern here are low-income and populous nations, such as China and India, because they can develop very sizable science and engineering workforces and at the same time have a low-wage advantage. So ultimately, the outcome of globalization in, of science and technology is unclear, it's uncertain, and we need to continue to monitor trends. So to summarize that, basically so far, we find that globalization of science and technology doesn't seem to have been uh, hurtful to the United States. It has so far not made the United States uh, be less successful in science and technology. Now I would like to move to the second part of this discussion, where we'll be focusing on the infrastructure. And here there is this notion that the United States is not investing enough in its infrastructure. And here we'll be looking at a number of R&D measures. And here again we find that we find no significant evidence for disinvestment in the U.S. infrastructure in terms of R&D. And this is a little surprising because this is the second time that we're finding sort of findings that are a little bit contrary to these many high-level reports that came out. And as I said, our approach is basically data-driven, so let's look at the data to sort of guide uh, your opinion on this. Here we see total R&D expenditures over the period 1953 to 2006. We see here by the sort of three types of spending, that is, uh, of, of, of research, basic research, applied research, and then development. Um, these numbers shown here are in constant dollars, that is, they are inflation corrected, so they show real growth. They show basically real dollars that you can buy uh, beer with, and, uh, or do research with. And um, as you remember, the, the, uh, the the most significant claim that was made in these reports is about significant underinvestment in basic research. And what we actually find is that, if you look at these last numbers here in yellow, these represent the growth rate in real terms over the last decade. We actually find that in basic research, the rate of growth actually has been solid and even faster than in applied research and in development. And again, these numbers are very much in line with historic growth rates. So in all of these measures, basic applied and development, we find no evidence of a slowing down of the investments made in the United States. Now, many individuals are argue or point that this number is a little misleading in the following sense. This, basically, the, the, the idea here is that the role of the federal government is very important in funding uh, basic research. And this number here contains both private as well as federally funded basic research. So we're also interested in looking at this from a, from a different angle. This is the same graph as shown before, but now we're, we're showing the source of funding. We see here the federal government, industry, and other sources. And basically, we see that the share of total R&D that is accounted for by industry has grown over the, pa over the past. Um, and that the federal government's share has diminished and uh, that it showed sort of very slow growth. And this, in fact, may have led to this, to this idea that the federal government is not investing enough in, in our future in the United States uh, because of this, this slow growth pattern. But this measure is also a little bit misleading in the following sense. This pattern 
you see these humps here, is very much driven by defense spending. So when we looked at the true sort of fundamental types of research that matter, which is the R&D at universities and R&D uh, and, and federally funded basic research, we find that the growth rate over the last decade or so is, is about 5% per year, so much faster than any of the growth rates that I've shown you before, and this is again very much in line with historic growth rates. So in all of these measures, we don't find evidence of disinvestment in our infrastructure, uh, in this case mostly focusing on, on research and development sp uh, uh, spending. So here I would like to move to the third part of this discussion, which focuses on, uh, on our people, that is the science and engineering workforce. And here I'll be giving a brief sort of introduction, and then I'll focus on three separate questions that have repeatedly been raised by these reports. What we see here is the growth rate in percentage of sort of degree production. These are science and engineering degrees at the graduate and undergraduate level combined in a number of science and engineering fields here, and then here for all of science and engineering. And the observation here is that this growth rate is relatively modest. That is, on average, it's about 1.5% per year. But the first thing to note that there's nothing particular about this growth rate. When you look at non-science and engineering fields, you find that the rate of growth of degree production is the same. What makes this number look very small, though, is when you look at this graph, which shows that increasingly we're not educating our own, but we're educating foreigners, which is, um, you see here, the, the percentage of science and engineering degrees that are being awarded to foreigners. Um, and you see it here at the doctoral level, the master's level, bachelor's level, and associate's level. And you see that this uh, share is large. Um, here in uh, engineering at the doctoral level, nearly 60% of the degrees are being awarded to foreigners. And this share has also increased over time steadily over the last several uh, decades. So this raises a couple of questions and concerns. And the first concern here is whether this slow growth in degree production, combined with the fact that we're educating increasing numbers of foreigners, um, whether this is producing shortages in the science and engineering workforce. The second question is whether we're actually educating the competition, that is whether foreigners are leaving. And then uh, the third question relates to the sort of job situation that this creates, the attractiveness of the careers for Americans. So to answer the first question, Jim and I looked at CPS data. This is current population survey data. And we looked at, at in detail at sort of the, the, the signs, the traditional indicators of a shortage. We here look at, at sort of signs of unusual wage growth or of very low unemployment. And basically, we found no evidence for shortages in the science and engineering workforce. We find that they have similar levels of unemployment and that they have relatively normal rates of wage increases. So this then sort of leads to the question where these uh, foreigners are, where, 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 sorry, where uh, these individuals are coming from. And basically there is, one, there is a couple of, of paths. One is that they could come through sort of a traditional route, that's sort of the normal path, which is that a U.S. citizen enters a U.S. science and engineering college 
obtains a degree in science and engineering, and then joins the U.S. science and engineering workforce. But there's two alternative paths that were identified. We found that there are a number of individuals, Americans, U.S. citizens, who are previously in non-science and engineering careers and now have joined the science and engineering workforce. Another path is immigration. That is, we find that the share of foreigners in the science and engineering workforce has grown from, six, from a 6% 6 share in 1994 to nearly double that in 2005. And these trends have fueled sort of significant uh, um, growth in science and engineering employment, which is what I'm going to show here, which is that here we see a number of science and engineering fields we see the degree production in green. That was the graph that I'd shown before. And then here we see occupational employment. And we see that in each of these fields, in, all of, in science and engineering, and here for all of science and engineering, we see that that rate of growth in occupational employment has outpaced the rate of growth in degree production. So basically, we see this very significant growth from, from uh, 1980 to 2000 here, but Jim and I have looked at separate data sources and found uh, that that rate of growth has continued well into 2006 in different uh, sources of data. Um, and basically, the, the, uh, the science and engineering workforce has seen very rapid growth of about 4.2% per year over that 26-year period, creating about 2.7 million jobs or nearly doubling the, si the size of the science and engineering workforce, more than doubling, in fact. Okay, here I'll be looking at that at a, at a, at a second uh, question that was raised, which is whether we are sort of educating the competition increasingly. And the answer that we have, the best data that we have on that is, in fact, so this is the question of whether foreigners are, are staying or whether they are leaving. And, in fact, what we find this is the best data that we have from a study by Finn, suggests that foreigners are increasingly likely to stay in the United States. We see here um, um, a very particular group. These are doctorates in science and engineering, foreigners who obtain doctorate degrees in science and engineering at U.S. universities, and the rate of, of at which they're found to be still in the United States two years after graduation, five years after graduation here in pink, and then in blue, 10 years after graduation. So these are the two-year, five-year, and 10-year stay rates. And it's found that in nine, if, you, if you focus on the, on the yellow line, the two-year stay rate, it's found that in 1989, which is when we observed the 1987 cohort, so we observed them two years after they graduated. So they graduated in 1987. In 1989, we find that two years later, uh, about 50% of them have remained in the United States. And that uh, two-year stay rate has actually gone up to nowadays, in 2005, when we observed those individuals who graduated in 2003, um, and, and now the rate sort of is about 70% or so. So increasingly likely that these individuals stay. Importantly, when you look at the two-year, and you compare that to the five-year and the ten-year stay rate, you see that these stay rates tend to track one another. Basically, this suggests that if individuals stay in the short run, two years, that they tend to stay in the long run, five years 
or even longer, 10 years, or even indefinitely. Um, which suggests basically that even today, these stay rates may well be the long-term stay rates near, near 70%. But we also saw, see that most recently, uh, there has been a, a slight decline in the stay rate, the two-year stay rate. We also see that the five-year stay rate, even though it has gone up, is, is, is sort of not tracking the two-year stay rate anymore. And it has been suggested that this might be due uh, or a result of the stricter visa policies that followed 9-11. So then, to go back to the last question that was raised in these reports, the third question, which is about what this all means for the careers of Americans. What, what, do, what, do, what do the foreigners do? What is their impact to sort of the attractiveness of, of careers in science and engineering? And here we note... First of all, that there is very low unemployment uh, for, for U.S. citizens in science and engineering. And we also note that the share of foreigners in the workforce is still relatively small. That is about 12% today. And uh, we note this very significant job creation, the very significant growth. About 2.7 million jobs have been created over the last 26 years or so. So it seems that there is ample space for both foreigners and for Americans in the science and engineering workforce. But the second point is that um, this notion of a boxed economy, that is an economy in which a foreigner enters the United States and, and replaces or displaces a U.S. Science and scientist and engineer, sort of one for one, is, is much too simplistic. There's a, a sort of body of evidence in a number of studies that have shown that foreigners can play a very important role in, in investment, actually, in creating jobs. And there are some numbers out there from some studies that say that uh, when a foreigner, a highly skilled scientist or engineer, comes in, or in general, highly skilled foreign uh, talent, when it comes in, it can actually create jobs, numbers like creating three or five jobs for Americans. But basically, we looked at a number of, at a study uh, that was a survey of, of managers. And this survey showed that in the R&D field, which is highly knowledge-intensive, so very much people-related, that in this field, um, when you ask managers for sort of the most important reasons for outsourcing and offshoring, they'll tell you that this is a, a need to find the talent. So basically, this is now uh, outperforming or is more important, a more important reason for outsourcing and offshoring than uh, the traditional sort of need to reduce costs or to have access to to other markets, to, to foreign markets. So basically, if that talent can be found in the United States, and here foreigners can play a role, if, let's say, you allow foreign talent to come into the United States, and then you give companies that extra leeway to hire the talent when they need it. And basically, this can help reduce or, or increase sort of the investments, the probability that the investments are made in the United States rather than that they're made uh, abroad. So these are, of course, the uh, future jobs for uh, Americans. So basically, we concluded that the real danger is not having too, uh, too, too many uh, foreign workers, but actually having too few highly skilled foreign uh, talent. And basically, the uh, reduction in the H-1B visa program, which has uh, occurred in 2003, it peaked at 195,000. The cap that was set on this H-1B program, which is a program through which uh, highly skilled talent can be hired, can be brought into the United States. Well, that has been reduced from 195,000 to now consistently at a level of 65,000. 
and we believe that this is not helpful, and in fact that it can be harmful to the United States. So then to sort of summarize all of this, we have seen that globalization of science and technology has not made it so far more difficult for the United States to be successful in science and technology. But basically, we pointed out a number of sort of positive effects from globalization, but there is also this concern about low-income populous countries, like for example China and India, which can develop sizable workforces and have a low-wage advantage. So basically there are concerns, and uh, it is very important that we keep on monitoring trends. We also found that the United States still has continued to invest in its future, basically in infrastructure, in R&D, in all the areas that matter, in total R&D, in basic research, in federally funded basic research, etc. We also found no evidence for a shortage of workers in the science and engineering workforce. Basically, our conclusion, or sort of bottom line, is that the United States continues to lead the world in science and technology, but that it should not take this position for granted. And to ensure that the United States remains a leader in science and technology, we make the following main recommendations. The first one is to encourage immigration of highly skilled talent. And the notion here is that foreigners can play an important role in ensuring that U.S. firms are competitive and uh, that they invest in the United States rather than that they invest in broad so that the, the future jobs for Americans are in the United States, that these investments are here in the United States. Um, and basically here, one simple solution to that would be to do something about this H-1B visa cap and, and increase it. Um, the second observation is here that in this sort of increasingly multipolar world in which we find centers of, of excellence in science and engineering uh, increasingly occurring outside of the United States, that is increasingly important for the United States to be part of those centers, to collaborate with others, and, and to basically be able to learn from that research. And for that, we envision sort of encouraging international joint ventures, um, as well as other collaborative forms of research, and there are many ways in which, we can, which one could do that. And then the last point is here that uh, we have seen that there are many institutions, entities, and individuals who are very eager to express their opinion about science and engineering, but we do feel that what's missing from this landscape is an entity that actually is responsible for doing that. That is an entity who is, who is responsible for monitoring the performance of, of the U.S. science and engineering enterprise, and, uh, and uh, that does this in a rigorous way, in an, uh, in an independent and objective uh, way, and very much that focuses also on the synthesis, on putting it all together, and what does it mean. Um, and basically, um, as, as we have seen, uh, globalization of science and technology is a powerful force of change, and basically the outcome of this insert is uncertain, and so it makes it increasingly important that we do this in a, in a, in a rigorous way. And here I would like to uh, open up the discussion. Ask uh, Jim to uh, to join us for the Q and A, uh, and he's uh, he's putting on his extremely elaborate, um, no doubt designed by uh, an engineer uh, or yes. scientist uh, in the United States uh, headset that we have uh, that we have offered him, and uh, and they'll both uh, have the opportunity to answer a few of your questions. So when Jim is ready, yes, sir. Should we can be concerned about <coughs> computer hacking in in countries that don't observe? 
our laws in in terms of uh, patents and so on, uh, where they steal our things, is this a factor, or do you think it will be in the near term? It is. It's a major factor. Um, one of the major concerns right now is cybersecurity, and as you probably are aware, there's been the creation of a cyber cybersecurity um, uh, battalion in the army, just as Israel created a cyber workforce, I think, two decades ago. Uh, the piracy of intellectual property, ranging from entertainments to software to scientific discoveries, I think, goes on and has gone on. Um, it's very difficult to police that. And in part, I think, maybe in large part, our best defense in the longer term right now against activities like that that I expect to continue is to have a, a highly capable and agile infrastructure that allows us to capitalize on those discoveries first. But that doesn't mean it's going to, by any means, prevent losses of benefits that otherwise would accrue to the inventors. So it's, you're, all I'm doing is agreeing with you. It's a genuine concern, and I don't think we have today effective global mechanisms to suppress that. I mean, basically, to suppress something like that, we need the support and involvement of each country in, where that, in which that occurs. And that takes away from some of the It does. It's, it hasn't, I agree, it's, it hasn't been quantified. I doubt that it really is truly quantifiable. Um, it's going to take away from some of this, but one of the underlying messages we have is that the globalization of science and technology is um, uh, a fact of life today. It's just there's an accelerating flow of discoveries and sharing of discoveries, and that occurs not only through the, the illicit mechanisms that you're referring to, but just through the ongoing everyday exchange of information through the Internet and through scientific uh, visits. And so... In part, you hope that those activities redound to encourage more rapid and more interesting discoveries where you are, but you also hope that the capabilities you have in our society, that one has in our society to make use of those discoveries, still make us highly competitive. That is, that we can move first and take advantage of that. But. I'm going to move us all the way to the back of the room for a question. Roy? It's not. Do you have uh, access to more current information because your cutoff date, the world has changed dramatically since 05 to today, uh, and, um, uh, and I wondered if you had access to more current information in, or if you believe that those graphs that you have, that they would continue to go in the direction that they did and at the incline that they did, or would they accelerate? Uh, for a fact, I know that China... On, on the patents has um, increased dramatically in the last couple of years, uh, as has the lawsuits they have filed uh, for patent infringements among themselves. Well, basically what we're presenting here is the most recent data that was available to us. We actually, the report came out in 2008, but we have updated the, this information more recently. So what you're seeing here is the most recent data that was available to us. But there has been the global recession, and definitely things have changed. Um, yeah, things, things continue. That's one of our messages is that it's important to continue to monitor it. For example, we'd love to have a more recent uh, edition 
of that study showing the stay rate of, of doctorates who earned their degrees here. Um, one of the concerns has been that since 9-11 and the change in the ease, or I should say the increase in the difficulty of even returning home for a vacation, um, is leading more and more foreign students to choose not to come to the U.S. or possibly to go back. And just to add to that, uh, one member of an audience that we presented this talk to is a dean at MIT, and he was saying that he was worried that three of the top graduates from one of their computer science department, who all happen to be Chinese, have been given offers to return to China. And that, I, you know, we have no doubt that his story is accurate, but it would also be interesting, in our opinion, to fill that out with more comprehensive data to find out really what's happening on the margin. And, it, and uh, we agree with you. I mean, one of the problems here is that multiple data sources and a relative lag uh, in the production of the data. So it'd be nice to have uh, more complete, more timely data. I noticed there, I would thought that there would be an item number four, which deals with education. Um, there's a, a, a few uh, confluent things. Number one, you read in the paper that the high school dropout rate is, pick a number, 30, 40 percent coupled with the staggering cost of getting a degree, I'm talking about a baccalaureate, no less a master's or a doctorate, at one of the better institutions like MIT or Stanford. So, and also at the same time, we, I saw a program that in India, the Indian Institute of Technology basically subsidizes the best and the brightest. So. Would you consider or did you deliberately leave off a concept of the federal government basically subsidizing education for our best and brightest? Well, we had to focus. So we have focused in a number of areas. Basically, there was a limited scope. But we looked a little bit into education. And basically, we find that there are some concerns with education. But one what thing that, we, for example, we find that there's a t that is a well-known fact that U.S. students in science and engineering at the sort of higher, uh, later years in, in high school do not perform as well as, as, as comparable nations of the, the OECD, industrialized nations. Uh, one thing that we do note is that, uh, which is sort of intriguing, which is that this has been uh, like that for a long time in the United States, which is not to excuse this situation, we have looked from it from a perspective of whether there was an immediate threat at this point in the United States, and we concluded that not necessarily that this is the case. But, I mean, clearly to be prepared in the future for sort of this, this increasing sort of what one, what one calls knowledge societies, one, one needs to have an educated uh, population. And basically we, we do in our report mention or suggest that there are good reasons for the federal government to sort of invest or for, for the United States in general to invest in education. One thing that is of interest, which is sort of recent developments in, in economics, uh, which, which show that the uh, greatest influence that one can have on, on trying to improve the education of the United States may be in early childhood uh, education. Uh, the interesting f findings here is that uh, these gaps between sort of lower socioeconomic status individuals and high uh, socioeconomic status individuals um, occur very early on and that you need to do something early on 
uh, before that gap forms, because when it, once it it's there, it's very hard to, to uh, get rid of it, to remove it, or to address it. So that uh, a lot of focus is often sort of on K-12 STEM education, education at, at, in high school, um, uh, in sort of the later years, and we believe that some of that may, may actually be uh, more essential in the earlier years. And it's also not important that it is necessarily in science and engineering, but just in general that you need educated people uh, in this sort of future world. Yeah. Yeah, that, I mean, I, I agree. I, I don't want to spend as much time as that, but this is such an important topic, and there's so much focus on it right now. L let me endorse that, but add another point, which is that for all of the interest right now in increasing the supply of native-born scientists and engineers through things like improving the number of science and mathematics teachers in high school and their training and the number of National Science Foundation graduate fellowships for study, one of the, I think, uh, items of concern is that the incentive of a young man or young woman to make a career in science and engineering will depend not just on graduate aid, but it will depend on earnings and career opportunities over the life cycle. We have, on the one hand, attracted foreign students with extraordinary abilities. For them to make the effort to come to the U.S. to study most likely indicates that they are selected from the upper portion of their own highly educated ability distribution. But by the same token, <laughs> The, as our data showed, the number of degrees being produced in the U.S. has been the same at the same growth rate in science and engineering as not. And a lot of U.S. students who are quite bright are choosing to go into business law and medicine. And in a sense, we're having very bright people go there and make discoveries there. And everybody, you know, makes a contribution. And in business in particular, one of the things that has struck us again and again in this area of study is the importance of the full spectrum of activity of putting knowledge to use. That goes from discovering it to then taking that discovery, whether it's patented or not, and getting it to the market. And it's not a bad thing to have bright people there, um, as well as good institutions and protection from piracy and so forth. But yeah, so starting with a well-educated workforce um, very important, and trying to figure out exactly you know, whether the dynamic we have today is wrong, where we benefit from the inflow of foreigners, but at the same time we worry about the fact that 60% of our engineering doctorates today are foreign-born, and some of our U.S. students are going into business law or medicine. So, please. Over oh, to this yeah. side, the side where we go right to the middle. I, 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 I've chosen a logistically hideous spot for this question, but we never get to the middle, and this is why. Okay, sorry for my choice of seating here. Uh, <laughs> uh, I actually have a two-part question. Uh, the gentleman in the back addressed the uh, the currency of the data being up to date. It's about four years old. Uh, could you give us your best estimate of where? the uh, curve would go to bring it up to date, seeing that the impact of the recession, that's part one. Part two is what impact, it's a futuristic uh, question, do you see the stimulus package playing on this whole picture? Um, 
I'll I'll start on that, I guess. Um, The um, R&D workforce is a highly educated workforce with a great deal of specialized knowledge. And economic studies of employment over the recession has shown typically that such workers, whether they're in science and engineering or elsewhere, tend to, have, tend to be retained in employment. So I expect stability in employment. Now, at the same time, you've seen the chart that shows that a very large fraction of our R&D budget, our R&D expenditures in the U.S., come from industry. And even, certainly some come from the federal government. But just thinking about industry by itself, the R&D investments that industry makes are in part fed by current revenues and, of course, capital raised. And right now, that recession is no doubt reducing those budgets and probably slowing and focusing the research. It may well be taking research in larger organizations away from risky and riskier and more exploratory work. Um, and at the moment, um, I guess we're, there's been some reduction in venture capital activities, but depending on what day you read it, there's some glimmerings of return to that. Um, so I'm not, I'm not expecting long-lasting adverse effects from this, but uh, it's hard to predict how long this recession is really going to last. I mean, I think all of us have heard estimates that will take it well into 2010, that is, you know, next year. And uh, I think that some of the people who will be hurt hardest by it are actually current college graduates. It's one of the hardest markets for them, and studies have also shown that the wage at which a college graduate starts relative to preceding and following cohorts uh, of graduates, if if you start in a bad year, your pay stays low for years, like 15 or 20 years, all right? It's somewhat lower. It doesn't, it just doesn't catch up. So there's, there's that to consider. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry, yeah. Um, well, the stimulus impact will probably be, be fairly minor here, although there is stimulus money set aside for federal grants. Uh, for example, there are even grants to study the effect of of federal grants in science and engineering. <laughs> We've, Titus and I have thought about getting, there's one called RAPID, that, that's the name of the grant program, and there's another one called EAGER. <laughs> and we were thinking of EAGER because it gives us a little more leeway. But um, basically, in the federal government, there's already been a significant amount of money going into life sciences. The Obama administration is committed to retain that. Uh, President Obama has committed to double the size of the science uh, uh, research budget over the next 10 years, I believe, and which sounds great, and, and that's fine with us. But one should also put it in perspective because um, that statement, I believe, uh, it nets out the amount of federal R&D going into defense, which is the majority of federal R&D, I believe. Um, and the actual doubling um, is only, what should I say, uh, I haven't actually made this calculation. It's but a it's, little higher than the, the annual. If you, look at the historic, yeah, okay, if you look at the historic growth rates in basic uh, research, federally funded basic research, because that's what most of this money 
will go to, to basic research, it actually amounts to roughly historic growth rates and a little bit on top of that. So it's a little bit better than that. Yeah. Um, in, in the, in, and that is sort of in the, in, the, in the science and engineering general, sort of engineering areas, physics, and so, et cetera. And then there is also the National Institutes of Health, so that goes to medicine. They will double in about uh, a shorter time period, not 10 years, but 8 years, and that amounts, I, I believe, also to historic growth rates in that the life sciences have typically, over the last uh, two decades or so nearly, uh, grown much faster. And a little small point about R&D. I saw a recent study by shown in sort of R&D magazine that showed that actually firms are not cutting back much so far on R&D. That is the percentage of of their budgets, their revenues going to R&D has remained relatively constant. But of course, as Jim pointed out, and as everybody understands, revenues are down now. Yeah. Yeah. Just to add, you know, for example, in Japan, during their prolonged recession starting around 1991, their share of they they continued to make a high commitment to R&D. So their share of Nash of GNP going to R&D was actually it increased slightly and held at about three percent instead of two and a half percent indicating their sort of steadfast commitment to that. Okay. I, I think we are going to sneak all the way to the back on this side, and then we'll come up to the front and over. <laughs> Thank you. When you were looking at the patent information um, in the patents filed, were you able to look at the data and determine how much um, from a revenue loss we as a country were losing with the increase patent uh, applications, not only from countries like China and, and other parts of the world, but additionally with the, with the departure of the talent, post-doctoral and other degrees, leaving back to their homelands and taking that intellectual capital with them. And the second part, um, dovetailing to the education part, uh, the point about the MIT dean, uh, um, what would be the role or if not the responsibility of a, a university? knowing that many of those students who come from particularly the Middle East and China come on government-sponsored education grants that require them, it is very much in writing, that they have to go back upon graduation and serve X number of years in a, in a capacity dictated by the government. So in effect, we know ahead of time that they will be leaving this country. So what, what role do we have? Um, what is that either philosophically or, or from a real um, uh, monetary perspective, what role do we have to, to make that decision and in, to how many of those students come on board? And then lastly, to the point about oh. the... Uh, <laughs> lastly, sorry, I already sorry. forgot your first I, I've, I've, been, I've been sitting back here very patiently taking it all in. And lastly, to your point about... I, I'm in the business of human capital, so, so all of this travels around my mind very, very quickly. To your point about getting, others, getting students into the engineering and sciences world, I think that it's, it's, a, it's a point that is beyond just economics, but it's a point of changing the perception and changing the paradigm, particularly in the Hispanic community. You look at Hispanics in America, in America even first generation, they orient themselves to, to teaching, very, very, obviously very um, honorable professions. But you go literally across the border in the lowest socioeconomic individual is oriented into engineering because they hold engineering at a vastly higher um, uh, uh, honorable prof profession even than medicine. So I think it's also a question of, of perception and changing that paradigm, and, and I'd love your thoughts on that. And I'm done. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I would like to give this to Jim, but... <laughs> you can pick and choose. Well, yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, on your first, I think you mentioned one point in your first point, which was that, that, that actually foreigners are leaving. 
actually, as we see, foreigners are increasingly likely to stay in the United States so far, it appears. But there's this recent data that suggests that maybe, they're, they're, maybe now things are changing because of 9-11. And you hear these anecdotal reports, sometimes on the radio, sometimes from the dean, from, uh, from MIT, etc. So where that is heading I is not clear. Then I think your second point was a little bit about sort of, um, I've thought about this in a very simple way. I think you raised some ethical issues here, which, which, which I don't think we have really considered too much. We've, in the sense that looking very simple, in a very simplistic, maybe selfish way, it would be good for the United States to keep these individuals here. Uh, this might be not so great for those sending nations who have invested in, their, in these individuals' education. Uh, and, and, uh, and, yeah, so that's a different sort of uh, question. Actually, it's a little bit... Uh, it depends. Yeah, sort of it, for that one, it does depend. Um, actually, a lot of the foreign students who come here are not supported by their own governments, but certainly many are, okay? In fact, we were talking about this this afternoon. We don't really know the percentage. Um, our understanding is that many of the students who come here are able to come here because they have the qualifications to enter a top-flight graduate program, and the graduate program provides financial aid, okay? And so they actually are available to afford their education in part because the United States institutions help to pay for it. Related to that, we talked at the end here about encouraging these joint international collaborations. I think it could be advantageous through indirect effects for the U.S. to have the opportunity to educate really bright people from abroad and then stay in touch with them and work with them to help them build the institutions in their country. And in the, in the domain of science and engineering, since our view, which I think is somewhat counterintuitive, is to try to foster international collaboration and arrangements in a limited way, obviously, you know, this in a sense is an economic calculation. You don't want to sort of give away the store as you make friends with people and share ideas. But what we're talking about is exactly that. Uh, that is sharing ideas, foreign fellowships, um, study abroad, uh, joint ventures to cooperate. Things like that have actually been undertaken by U.S. corporations that want to enter foreign markets because often the, the portal, the, the way to get into a foreign market is to make contact with governments, uh, with local businesses, bring them into the deal, um, find out what they would like to achieve. It could be that they want to develop their own uh, manufacturing capability and then their own research capability. And the U.S. and other inter U.S. international corporations and others too have engaged in those sorts of activities to help build their corporations overall. So, again, this sort of ties back. I mean, your question raises some deep and genuine concerns, but it ties back in part to whether one begins this consideration of these points regarding whether it's a zero-sum game or a world in which there is ample room for, for prosperity in many countries and you know, growth and trade and exchange. Um, risks abound, and the U.S. is where it is, not because we're entitled to high prosperity, but because we've earned it. And that's been a combination of hard work, resources, and luck, and good institutions, and so on. All of those ingredients are important. And as part of it also are international relations. 
You, you guys did such a great job with the compound question. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something <laughs> new and different um, with multi-part. We're going to really quickly take a question and a question and then let you answer both <laughs> um, so that we make sure that we, uh, that we let some patient folks ask. I'm not sure I remember my question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you alluded earlier to the linkage between national security and science and technology. Um, it seems obvious, especially over the last two years, considering the economic uh, circumstances, that uh, economically we're going to be tied down for the next 10 years paying off debt. Given the poor performance of public schools, graduation rates, given the exorbitant cost of doctoral and postdoctoral work, looking toward the future, not in the near term, not in the next five years, but in the next 50 years, because so much of our economic prosperity lies in the fact that uh, we can maintain our economic superiority. Uh, what is going to happen to our capability as we look down the road where it directly affects our national security and where we may not be the leadership, be in the leadership in the vanguard that we are accustomed to? So we're going to hold on to a question about long-range impacts, and particularly national security. We're going to take a question up front. Uh, my question and observation, observation first, uh, relates to point two there, and it also relates to sort of not the impact of science and technology on national security, but the impact of national security considerations on the encouragement or disencouragement of international joint science and technology ventures. Over the roughly 40-year course of the Cold War, the U.S. coming, f starting from a mindset that U.S. technology and science was so much better than any place, any place else in the world, put together a whole set of obstacles to the free uh, flow of science and technology. Technology transfer obstacles, the ITAR, the international, you know, a transfer and arms regulations, all these other things that, at least in the areas of physical science and engineering that could potentially have a dual use, uh, put up all sorts of obstacles that in, that impacted research establishments, uh, that impacted uh, universities, that even impacted the RAND Graduate School when it, you know, when it had foreign students and so on and so forth. Um, in your conversations with people that led up to, you know, your number two encouraging international joint, et cetera, et cetera, did these topics uh, come up? I don't think they've all died away yet, even though the Cold War ended 20 years ago. Um, uh, so do you have any comments on that? Do we need to change those kind of things if we really want to encourage those things in number two? So who wants to take that on first? You've got the, the threats to okay. national security of changing and the threats to national security of not changing. I think there's a little bit of overlap in the sense that <clears throat> we didn't look in too much detail at, we looked at this from an economic perspective. But in the beginning of the research, we actually did look at this question of national security. And uh, there are some, some interesting things in the sense that we looked at a report that actually concluded, that looked exactly at this question, uh, I, I hope I remember it correctly, which is basically the, 
the, the observation that the world has changed, which is basically that the old paradigm of the Cold War, in which the U.S. was dominant in sort of science and technology, and because it was dominant, could actually, uh, had actually sensible ways of being able to not allow that technology to be transferred. Also, the Internet didn't exist, and, and there was sort of technology diffusion has changed a lot. So uh, we're now living in a world where these technologies uh, can be freely exchanged. Okay, so we've, we actually, yeah, that's very important. So this report, actually, that we studied had a recommendation, which is that basically that it needs to make much more sense to sort of put a technology on a, on a list. And, and, and one of the recommendations, which made a lot of sense to me, which is that the technology sort of should only be protected if you really know that you're the only one, the United States, that is, that has it and that can keep it, because actually it can harm uh, the, the, the U.S. Uh, defense uh, uh, industry actually if you don't because what happens is the US cannot produce these technologies which let's say dual use because they then can sort of be used by others um, but in fact what will happen is the Europeans will produce it it strengthens their defense industry and it weakens the US defense industry and, and so you have, a, you have a problem there so the, so the technology uh, should really be only in your domain before you decide to put it on a list like that that's one of the recommendations that makes sense to me. Jim, thoughts looking long term? Thoughts looking long down the road? <laughs> yeah, I was. Uh, Shall I repeat it? No, no. Actually, you remember it? <laughs> no, I, would you, actually, I would appreciate it if you would repeat it. Well, I think, um, uh, and you can tell me if I'm if I'm um, if I'm mastering, yeah. but I think you, I think you were looking for a bit of a long-term view, which is essentially, uh -huh. you know, uh, if if you're if you are projecting out ten years, um, well, more than ten. Uh, ten and beyond. Given the impediments that exist today, right? Given <coughs> poor school, the school, right? Public schools, and right? The uh, we, one of the th well, those are again all huge issues, and the um, even if our schools were performing well now, and even if graduate education were less expensive and more widely available, um, the outlook in the future would still be one where our prosperity and national security would depend crucially on our ability to compete. And we have, uh, through in various, various examples, the most recent one of which is the U.S. automobile industry, seen cases where we had a tremendous advantage and it was competed away. And we also have stories where, at least for now, uh, we, have you know, we have made tremendous strides uh, and hold substantial global and, of course, national market share in the computing industry, information technology industry. Certainly a highly competitive, rivalrous industry where, you know, no company can take the current generation of chip as something, or technology as something they can count on as producing profits even two or three years from now. So that... What I'm pointing to is that whereas schooling and the cost of graduate education are definitely important and they feature in, inevitably we have to have the institutions and incentives that
that will enable us to compete because we will surely face the competition. In schools, um, I'm always struck by the fact that in 1960 or so, when the Kerr Commission report came out in California, California's spending per capita on its K-12 student ranked California, I think, sixth nationally. Now, since then, and to the, you know, to the present date, things have changed. And the current ranking is 47th. And yes, it, there's a lot more that can be said. And I don't, I'm sorry, I, I, I appreciate that. I don't mean to be inflammatory or alarmist about this. I mean, at the same time, California has doubled its population. We've had enormous growth in the number of students. There have been uh, huge Im increases in immigration and so forth. Uh, the UC system remains, was built into one of the world's finest systems. And it remains an important source of our future, universities of that caliber remain an important source of our future prosperity. So um, there's, you know, your question is so broad and important. There's no simple answer. There, you know, there is, I can't even think of a single best package to fix it. I would like, for example, to see improvements in the K-12 system, not only in California, but more broadly nationally. Uh, the high school graduation rate um, today, if I recall, is around 92% for whites, around, I think, 85% uh, for African Americans, and I think it's um, about 65% for Hispanics. And the, the Hispanic statistic is interesting it has tended to remain low because so many of the immigrant families that have come in have youth who attend high school for a couple of years and then go out to work. And that has been the pattern for some time. For African Americans, if I recall, the rate had been around 78%. And over the past three or four decades, that rate has improved. And of course, at the same time, really in beginning in the decade post-civil rights, we have seen the emergence of a true African-American middle class, which is substantial economic progress. But at the same time, you know, so that's a good, good sign, but at the same time, one of the things that's happened in the U.S. since the mid-'70s is that the real wage of a high school graduate, a person with a high school grad degree only, has remained constant in real terms. And the real wage for somebody without a high school degree has decreased in real terms. And the key reason why the U.S. Um, um, family income has risen has been the growing labor force participation of both parents, especially the mother. And during the 70s and then into the 80s, more and more women were working, and initially their entrance into the labor force had to do with, uh, you know, they having older children, but as, as time went on, mothers with younger children were also entering, and that trend has more or less topped out. One of the things that really surprised Titus and me when we were delving into the point, the area that he referred to earlier about the importance of very early childhood education is that um, on the one hand, between 1980 and 2000, the number of college graduates in the U.S. increased by 20 million. That's a lot. Between 2000 and 2020, the projection for the increase in college graduates in the U.S. labor force is 8 million. 
And this has to do with the fact that the labor force participation trend has topped out, that the big baby boom boom uh, wave has sort of passed through. Um, it's different. And so one of the things on our mind is that with the relatively smaller number of college graduates coming out now, and yet the you know, worldwide importance of knowledge as a source of economic prosperity, that the competition for college graduates will be very important. And hence the concerns that we have, of not only of trying to get more people through college and working productively in the economy, keeping the door open for immigrants to come here and, and hopefully remain here, and if not, develop good relationships with them so that they're... But those, those changes are related to your, you know, these qu changes about the composition of labor force. They're very much related to your question and, and the same topics we've been talking about. Uh, they will, too, affect our ability to compete in the future. I'm going to welcome those who still have questions to stick around, and so I'm, uh, I'm officially volunteering Titus and Jim. Uh, it, before thanking them, I'm officially volunteering them to stick around for a while after. But I hope you'll join me in, uh, in thanking them for a terrific and provocative discussion. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.